What's up again, everybody? Welcome to this very special edition of the Modern Podcast for Sunday, February or April 4th, 2021. Not February. I don't know why I even said February. It's two months ago. It's not even... March would have made more sense, right? But not February. Anyway, April 4th, 2021. It is Easter Sunday. So happy Easter Sunday. And that is not why is a very special episode of the podcast. I know that Easter Sunday is a very special day for Catholics, and my mom is a very devout Catholic, so it's a one of the holiest days of the year for her, and we fortunately will be able to meet as we normally do um, in person. Um, we weren't able to do that last year. We had a virtual Easter celebration, and so we will now be meeting in person this year at the venue that we normally go to, or actually eating out even. Um, for Easter Sunday. So that'll be quite nice. And speaking of which, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, maybe not that specific topic, but the reason behind it of that, of course, is COVID. And we're going to talk about some different aspects of that. We haven't talked about that in a while. And um, we really haven't addressed the vaccine on the show. So I do want to talk about that a little bit as well. Um, But no, it is special because we, I I put a, a little short um, show out maybe 45 seconds long earlier this week, um, announcing that we have switched platforms from Anchor to Podbean. So we're very excited to be part of the Podbean family. Um, but uh, I, I will I will first say the reason that I decided to make the switch has nothing to do with um, with uh, with Anchor. Um, they've always been great to work with. Um, the platform's solid. I've never had any problems. I've you know maybe had one or two issues uploading shows and getting my feed to update. Um, you know, it only happened I think once in the two and a half years <clears throat> that we were with um, with Anchor. So um, very very happy uh, with their with their service. It's just that I think we kind of outgrew them a little bit. Uh, you know, we we really have grown over the last six months, and I've wanted to expand the show into other things. And um, Anchor just was not. Um, did not allow me to do that. So, you know, for, you know, I think, like I said, that, that means we probably just grew out of it more than anything, but that, you know, that doesn't take anything away from Anchor as a platform. You know, I still highly would recommend it, especially if you're just starting out and you don't want to put a lot of, um, you know, money into it and you still want to be able to have the flexibility and freedom to record longer shows or shows more often um, because, you know, other, you know, we've talked about it before when I've done advertisements for, for Anchor that um, you know, you on other platforms they do offer a free plan, but they're very limited um, in terms of how much you can record and you know, in, in bandwidth and things like that. So if your audience starts to get bigger, which takes a while, I mean, you know, that's the other thing is that when you get into podcasting, you don't want to sink a lot of money into it because you're not going to get results right away unless you already are established, have an established brand in some other form in your unknown entity. And then you're taking your, then you're just expanding your brand to podcasting. Um, you know, if you're just some a, a normal person just wanting to explore the medium, Anchor is the perfect um, way to do it. Um, but Podbean, you know, I did a lot of research, and um, I thought Podbean would be the right fit for for our show. Um, it's still, you know, it's a paid platform now, but we're gonna we're we're doing it well enough to offset the cost of that. So that's that's nice. Um, but it, it took a while to get to that point, obviously. 
But, um, you know, we're really excited. Um, it looks like the move went very seamlessly. All of our shows are now um, hosted by Podbean. I have not shut down the Anchor site yet. Just I just want to make sure that everything gets moved over properly. But um, And it looks like our show is being pushed out the way it's supposed to be pushed out. So Anchor made it really easy to switch to, which was, which was nice. Um, and most platforms do are doing that these days. And um, so you can just redirect your feed. So you probably didn't even notice that we changed from Anchor to Podbean. It probably isn't anything that you even need to worry about. Um, because if you're getting this show, it's our first full show on Podbean. Um, you probably are hearing this. And if you're hearing it, that means nothing. You had to do nothing. You're, you know, whatever you're using to get, to get the podcast is getting the feed now from Podbean. So anyway, we're really excited about that. And we're, we're excited for the possibilities that could bring to the program. So just wanted to throw that out there. Um, really quickly, before we get too far into other things, um, you, as you recall, we did talk about um, voting ID and, and, and voting rights lawsuits and um, rights acts and, and you know whether there's restrictions and on things. And we talked about the, the history of voter ID. Now, one thing that we pointed out was that the reason that voter ID laws tend to indirectly be di- discriminatory, maybe not even overtly, but it, at least that's the consequence of them. It seems to disproportionately affect um, minorities, and that has nothing to do with intelligence or you know minorities not understanding how to get an ID or things like that. It's just that proportionally speaking, minorities just do not have IDs to the level that other people do. And so the consequence of a law like that is that they disproportionately affect minorities. Again, I think the everyday American that is in support of voter ID um, doesn't even uh, that doesn't even register with them and they don't think that that's the reason that is being done. Now there's some people that understand that it that all that also, disproportionately affects Democrats versus Republicans. And so it helps Republicans. And there are political strategists that absolutely understand that fact. But I think the average American that supports voter ID laws does not see it that way. And they don't see it as racist at all. And they just don't understand that that is the, co- that is the effect of it, um, whether it's intended or not. And I'm sure that that's not their intention. Most people that support voter ID, it's not out of racism, has nothing to do with that. So, and I think it's disingenuous for the left to accuse everyday Americans of doing that. Again, if political strategists, you know, the the, the political machines, the Republican National Committee, um, you know, sure, they probably are very well aware of those things. But the average voter, the average American um, is not understanding that at all and does not see that as the intention. So just... You know, in that context, um, here's a tweet from Mark Eli- uh, Elias, and I'm not sure he is the founder of Democracy Docket. And so, um, let me read this. He's a blue check mark on Twitter, by the way. Um, the new Georgia law will require voters to submit ID to vote by mail. If they use their driver's license, they need to provide the number. One of the two numbers below is correct. If they put the other, it will be rejected. Are you sure you will pick the right one? So there's two numbers that are present on these IDs. And they show a picture, a a sample picture of a Georgia ID. The first one is at the top and it says DL number, 
followed by numbers in large, a very large um, font. And then there's another that says DD on the lower left below the picture and signature that's a, a longer number in small text. So in, in there, so their argument is that this is why um, voter ID, you know, he doesn't mention race, but again, we've always heard that voter ID laws are racist. So this would imply that people would not understand which number is which. Now, if you're asked for your driver's license number, wouldn't you assume that they're asking for the DL number, you know, driver's license number, because the other one says DD and then has a bunch of numbers in a much smaller, you may not even notice that that number is even there. And also the number is way longer than the driver's license, the number. The driver's license number appears to be maybe nine or 10 characters, whereas the number below is 20 characters. So if you're filling this thing out, you probably wouldn't be able to fit that number. You'd have to really cram it in there. I doubt very many people are going to, I'm, I'm pretty sure that 99.99% of people are going to pick the right one. So this argument against, this is an argument against voter ID. So this is not about access to an ID. This is assuming you have the ID. So you already have the ID, right? So now, now that's where I think that if people are saying that actually this is where liberals show their racism, the soft bigotry of low expectations. And there's a lot of commenters pointing that very fact out. And the people that are trying to argue with them really don't have much of an argument. I mean, it, it's pretty it's pretty clear what number you would be providing. And it's clear that this is a very subtle racist tweet by this guy, even though he probably will claim that he doesn't have a racist bone in his body. He's a liberal. He supports civil rights and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, just that that thing that that the, this is where people get angry about this kind of stuff, and so I see where they're coming from on on that. Um, parents are suing LAUSD and the United Teachers of LA um, in, in in here in Los Angeles. Here's a here's an excerpt from a, a article from Fox News LA, uh, Fox Eleven News LA. Nine parents of Los Angeles Unified Children have proposed have filed a proposed class action lawsuit alleging that the district's plans for distance learning are inadequate and violate students' rights to a basic public education under the state constitution. Attorney Sierra Elizabeth with the law firm Kirkland & Ellis says this case is being handled for free by her firm. She says that what they want is a return to the kind of LAUSD workflows that existed before the pandemic which they believe could work at home. So this isn't necessarily a lawsuit about making, you know, forcing kids to return back to the classroom. So this is what Elizabeth with uh, what Sierra Elizabeth says. So for example, teachers were working eight hour eight hour workdays. Now they're only working six hour workdays. Teachers are getting a maximum of one hour of professional development before they were getting up to four point five hours of professional development. Um, she said things like student assessments have gone away and the families are seeking immediate relief. 
And according to the lawsuit, during the spring semester, LAUSD engaged only 30%, 36% of students in daily online learning, and the district's engagement of black students, Latino students, and English language learners and pupils with disabilities was notably worse. The suit alleges that LAUSD's plans for the fall semester continue much of the harm from the spring spring by providing students with nearly 60% less live learning time and access to their teachers. LAUSD is allowing for the least amount of learning time with teachers out of the state's five largest districts, some of which are providing more than twice as much learning time with their teachers and classmates than LAUSD. Now, um, the Los Angeles Unified School District issued a statement, LAUSD has not been served with a lawsuit. However, many of the challenges society faces present themselves in schools, including the impact of COVID-19. School districts like Los Angeles Unified have to have to balance the sometimes conflicting priorities of the learning needs of students and the health and safety of all of the school community. Um, they go on to say um, they have been working to bridge the digital divide, ensuring all students have devices and access to the internet. And um, some parents that they've talked to are claiming that they did not indeed do that. Um, one of the parents um, was uh, Shanita Hurd. Our biggest issue is communication. We were unaware of a lot of the things that were supposed to happen from LUSD. And then when they made us aware of certain things we were supposed to have, they did not have it available for us. So that's what is, is going on. And really, the way to solve that is to have more time on campus. And the, the state has already reduced the amount of learning time required um, from six hours to four hours. And so even when if our kids return to learning all on campus versus a hybrid approach where they're spending 50% of their time on campus and 50% essentially, um, at least Monday through Thursday, um, in a, uh, a self-learning um, environment. So basically, um, you self-study is what I, this is the term I was looking for. So um, you know, even when they go back to school and they get their quote-unquote full day on campus, that day is still going to be the minimum day schedule, which is essentially 8 to 12.30. So even at our school district, which I believe is doing the best job they can given the circumstances, it's still not going to be full-time school. Now, I think there is a thought that by maybe fall, um, or at least maybe even by July, when our kids will graduate to the next um, grade because they're year-around school, so they'll have June off, their track has June off, and then they return in July, and that's when they'll be in their next grade. So the boys will be in sixth grade. My daughter will be in fourth grade. And so that is the hope is that maybe by then we're going to go back to the regular school schedule because that is that is that signifies the new school year for our district. So we'll see how that happens. There's still three months to go. Um, the numbers continue to look better and better. We keep continuing to get into the less restrictive tiers here in California. And all those things will help hopefully push things to normal. And we're going to talk about the COVID vaccine and later in the show that also kind of addresses that as well. I did want to address one quick thing too. The other thing that we talked about last week was um, the shooting incidents in Atlanta and in Boulder, and then also more of a discussion about guns and things like that. Well, there was an incident this week that hit a little bit closer to home. As I have shared on this program, 
I am a local government employee. I work in in a city in Orange County. So having an incident happen in Orange County hits closer to home. And so the city of Orange was actually hit with a what has been called a mass shooting. But if you look at the facts of the case, it really doesn't fit the mold of other mass shootings. It just fits the technical definition of the number of deaths that occurred. But the circumstances don't really fit what other these other incidents have been, which has been more random. Now, the Atlanta shooting was targeted in that they were targeting a certain type of business, but it was still indiscriminate in terms of which businesses of those types he picked. He didn't he didn't have a personal beef with any one of those businesses, but he just had a beef with a type of business. And then the Boulder shooting was was even more random in that he just went to a supermarket. So that's one of those things where it could have been anybody. It could have been any one of us that this was, that this happened to. The case in Orange is a little bit different in that, yes, there were four people that were killed, and that does meet the definition of the media, media's definition anyway, of a mass shooting. But once you start looking at the facts of the case as they start to slowly come out, um, you know, first, of course, this was just a, assumed to be another mass murder just like any of the others. But now it's looking like this was not a random act. This was a targeted business. The, 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 the shooter knew all the victims. And so, um, you know, four of the, four of the five um, people that were shot by the suspect um, were related, um, either by blood or by marriage. So there is that, there is that connection. Um, and then the, then the fifth victim um, they're still not really clear on. There's not. They haven't really given a lot of details as to the connection between that person and the rest of the people there, other than to say that the person also worked there. Um, and then I guess the shooter, um, the allegations in the in the media anyway, are that the shooter's wife used to work at this place. Now again, those details are a little bit foggy, um, and I think that. One of the things that the DA has said is they're taking their time with this investigation. They want to make sure they get everything right. Um, you know, this is the, the there was a mass shooting in Seal Beach a few years ago at that salon, and that was a na- nationwide story. And so that's where this guy went in and shot up a bunch of people because uh, it was where his his ex wife or his soon to be ex wife was working. And, um, and, and so went and shot, you know, her and everybody that was working there, um, more deaths in that situation than in this one. But, um, you know, the DA had talked about mistakes were made in that, in that particular, uh, case, and they want to make sure that they don't make those same mistakes here. So I think that's why details have been slow to come out. A lot of the details now that are coming out about the victims are coming from the, from the victim's family. And so it's not coming from official sources, which is what maybe muddies the water a little bit in terms of the relationships and in the circumstances as to why this happened. But it wasn't a random act. It's not something that you have to be afraid of, like, oh, my God, that could have been easily been me. Well, it would have been easily been you had you been involved in, in a certain situ- type of maybe domestic situation that this seems to involve. So um, I did want to address that just because, you know, I've, I've shared on here before that I do work in Orange County. So obviously that is in the region that I work. And so I thought I'd just, uh, you know, I, I d- discussed that a little bit. So Joe Biden, go, kind of getting into the politics of things now, Joe Biden 
has introduced an infrastructure bill, and I think it's going to change quite a bit from the way it has been proposed. So here is an article from NPR um, describing the bill. Um, President Biden on Wednesday will unveil a sprawling, ambitious infrastructure proposal that, if enacted, would overhaul how Americans get from point A to point B, how their electricity is generated, the speed of their internet connections, the quality of their water, and the physical makeup of their children's schools. The $2 trillion proposal includes $115 billion to repair uh, and rebuild bridges, highways, and roads, $100 billion to expand high-speed broadband across the entire country, $100 billion to upgrade and build new schools, and $100 billion to expand and improve power lines and spur a shift to clean energy. Now, clean energy is a big part of this, and so when they're talking about the transportation portion of it, um, they, they talk about this. Biden wants to spend billions on rebates and tax incentives to encourage Americans to purchase electric vehicles, and he proposes paying for the trans- transition to thousands of s- transit and school buses from diesel to electric. Uh, at the same time, he wants to he wants incentives for state and local governments to build electric vehicle charging stations to power those new cars and buses. Altogether, Biden is proposing $174 billion in spending on boosting the electric vehicle market, more than the plan would spend on highways and bridge repairs. So that one is 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 a big sticking point for the Republicans. And how that money will be spent, where that money is going to be prioritized. They talked about 10 of the most um, uh, economically challenged bridges, I think. they I don't know exactly how they worded that, but I think they have 10 specific bridges in mind. And then also um, 20,000 other bridges that are probably structurally deficient. Now, again, how that money it would be divvied up, how that's distributed is going to be something that will be worked out through the congressional process. And you can bet that congressmen and congresswomen will be trying to get some of that money for their own districts and get specific projects for their own districts. And so, again, that's where, when we talk about term limits, where it is important to have somebody that has been there for a long time, that knows the that knows the players, that knows the game, that can then maybe advocate better on behalf of their constituents, because you have um, Lauren Boebert, you know, proposing a bill to require that Fauci gets, you know, has to be um, fired basically, and replaced by somebody that's confirmed by the Senate. Well, the head of the National you know, Infectious Diseases, whatever he's in charge of, um, that's not confirmed by the Senate. That is not a position that is confirmed by the Senate. So again, it, it just goes to show that you, know, you have these junior um, Congress people that don't know what the hell they're doing. And they think they do, but they don't. And can you imagine, though, that you have a bunch of people that don't even understand the basics of how appointments work? I mean, again, we're not expected to know that as, as, as regular citizens, although I'm sure a good portion of the people that listen to this program probably do. But I would expect somebody that's actually in Congress to understand that. And if they don't, they need to learn it. And maybe their staffers need to stop her from saying this kind of crap before she makes a complete idiot out of herself. But I am I am going off on a tangent like I tend to do. So again, we just spent 
where we just passed a $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. Now we're going to spend another $2 trillion on um, the uh, on infrastructure, which, again, I think is needed, but... Again, this is a very aggressive program. Now you're you know you're not spending. It's not like you know the moment that the bill passes that we're writing a check for one point nine trillion dollars, or in this case two trillion dollars. It's going to be spent over the next eight years, and also that doesn't necessarily include the total investment. A lot of times, federal grants require a local match, either a state match or a local match. So they say, all right, we'll give you sixty percent of the money for your project, you have to come up with the other 40% locally. So you may have gas tax funds, you may have um, local county transportation sales tax measures that pay for those. Um, and and that's, that's, that's the examples that I usually come up with that, that are in California, but other states may have other mechanisms of how they would come up with that match as well. They could issue bonds on their own. Um, to come up with that match. And so there's different ways that that, that these that, um, places will come up with that. But that's almost assured that there's going to be some kind of match on a lot of this money. So the question becomes, though, how do we pay for that? The White House wants to raise corporate taxes to 28%, halfway between the current top corporate rate of 21% set by Donald Trump's 2020 or 2017 uh, tax law <clears throat> and the 35% rate before it was enacted. Biden's measure would also raise the global minimum tax for U.S. multinational corporations attempting to stop the shifting of profits to tax havens. The infrastructure proposal does not mention raising individual tax rates, including on wealthy Americans. So again, this is the president's proposal. It's obviously Congress that ultimately has to pass it and, and, and send something to his desk for signature. And so Congress could add additional tax provisions into this bill because the CBO may go, which is the Congressional Budget Office, may say, hey, this raising of taxes is not going to be sufficient to pay for this. And so um, Congress may look at that and go, okay. And the CBO doesn't make policy recommendations. They just say, hey, there's the, the you know, the, the proposal says it, that they want to spend this and this is how they want to pay for it. We're saying based on our analysis, it won't pay for it. And they stop there then it's up to, to Congress to decide, okay, how are we going to make up the difference? Are we just going to float the, the debt and try to pay it off later? I mean, how is that going to work? And so obviously that's something that will be debated during this. Uh, Murray Rep Missouri Representative Sam Graves, who is the top Republican on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, um, said a transportation bill, I think, needs to be a transportation bill, not a Green New Deal. It needs to be about roads and bridges. And this is what he told uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg during a recent hearing. Uh, Jamal Rad, who is the co-founder of the climate advocacy group Evergreen, argues that the Biden administration should proceed through reconciliation right off the bat or persuade Senate Democrats to vote to eliminate the filibuster rules because they understand that, um, you know, based on the filibuster rules in the budget rules right now in, in the Senate, they would need 60 votes, which means they would need to come up with um, 10 Republicans to support this thing before it would even get off the ground, or at least, yeah, it would it would have to be 10. So that's why they're saying, well, you need to do reconciliation because reconciliation only requires a simple majority, which they would have but they'd have to have every single one of their people on board. And you've got people like Kirsten Cinema, 
um, of course, Joe Manchin, that um, have been more moderate and they, because they come from states that expect them to be. You know, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Christ, uh, Kirsten Sinema from, um, from Arizona, um, you know, they are kind of pushing back on, on some of these things and, you know, maybe too aggressive. And, you know, again, this is one of those things where the president puts out a plan and they may have to negotiate. This is where, this is kind of their starting proposal. This is the opening proposal. And now they kind of negotiate and they make counter offers and things like that and work out and, and, and talk to different individual senators and, 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 and representatives to make the deals happen. And there's going to be a lot of wheeling and dealing. So, this has been proposed. It's probably going to take a while for this thing to actually ultimately make it to Biden's desk for signature, if it makes it there at all. Um, at least it, it won't in this form. I can almost guarantee it. They're going to have to make some concessions. But there's going to be a lot of negotiation, a lot of horse trading. And ultimately, this is a bill that is prime for pork. <clears throat> so um, this is what Jamal Rad um, ended with. I believe there is Republican support for certain investments in infrastructure, certain investments in their community for jobs, even in clean energy. But I do not think there will be anywhere close to the 10 Republican votes for the scale scope or of the challenge we need to meet. And that is exactly what my point was as well. Now, things that can make this thing even more complicated is the, is the strings that are attached to this money. And a, Here's an example from Texas that really kind of demonstrates that and how the transportation department would actually put strings on this money in terms of how it is spent on roads and bridges on that on that specific part of it. President Joe Biden's Department of Transportation is invoking the Civil Rights Act to pause a highway project near Houston, a rare move that offers an early test of the administration's willingness to wield federal power to address a long history of government-driven racial inequities. DOT's intervention follows complaints from local activists that the state's proposed widening of Interstate 45 would displace an overwhelmingly black and Hispanic community, including schools, places of worship, and more than 1,000 homes and businesses. And this ties back all the way back to the 1970s. You know, I've talked about, um, on, on a past program, I think it was episode 62 way back, way back when, um, and it is available um, on our website. If you go back, you can, you can find it. Um, that talks about the construction of the Southern California freeway system and how it, eventually, it, it essentially didn't get built and largely because of these types of things. And Interstate 105, which was the last major freeway built in Southern California, faced this exact thing, and it actually delayed the construction of it by 10 to 12 years while they figured out what they were going to do. Because again, it was going through a neighborhood that was socioeconomically challenged, high, high percentage of minorities in those communities. And so um, a number of lawsuits were filed under the same thing. So in a March 8th letter to the state, the Federal Highway Administration, citing complaints from local act activists and Representative Sheila Jackson-Lee, who is the representative in that area, requested that the Texas Department of Transportation hold off on its expansion of I-45, including initiating more contract solicit solicitations until the federal DOT had time to review civil rights and environmental justice concerns. So given that... And given where now we're proposing to spend all this money, you can bet that this kind of thing will be a huge issue on how this money is spent 
in how these projects are done. Um, I think you can probably take off the table that this is actually going to expand the transportation network in terms of traditional car-driven um, miles. So if you think about, um, you know, instead of expanding the freeways, they want to expand public transportation to increase capacity of the transportation network, right? That's always a, pro a, 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 a possibility. But a lot of people, especially here, like Southern California is so spread out, public transportation really doesn't make as much of an impact as it would in a more densely urbanized area. And so that's why you, when you look at those things and you want to expand that, it sounds good in theory, but it, in practical use, it really doesn't make much sense. But I cannot see how a dime of this money would be used to add freeway lanes, for example. It sounds like it's just going to fix existing things that are already there and not necessarily increase capacity. It'll just make sure that existing capacity can still keep up with what is currently there, but it's not necessarily going to increase the amount of capacity that's out there now. And that is a concern. So again, I think that you look at these transportation bills, especially with a Democratic um, Congress and a Democratic president and the Department of Transportation making these kinds of moves, I think this could be something that holds it up to as well because you know that the law is going to be written with these types of provisions in them to ensure that the money is not spent this way. So that, hey, if you want federal money, guess what? We, can, you, we can't stop you from doing whatever you want, but what we can do is we, number one, we can use federal laws if we think federal laws are being violated. But number two, we can we can put these strings on money, and that's how the federal government wields its power. More, more than anything else, and I've talked about it on the show before, the federal government wields its power through the purse strings. They say, do the project this way or you're not getting our money. Do the pro, you know, and, and, and this is, by the way, this is not just limited to liberals. Donald Trump did the same thing, remember. He wanted to defund cities that were sanctuary cities. So again, using federal money to implement federal policy, right? And saying, all right, great. You want to do that? Kiss goodbye all the money you're getting from us. And, on, and obviously, sanctuary cities usually get more per capita from the federal government than other places because usually there's enhancements related to socioeconomically challenged um, communities, and those are tend to be those tend to be where those are. So again, it's not just something that's limited to the left. The right does it too, and that's how the federal government really has operated. And the way they've been able to do that is because they've expanded income tax so much that they are the biggest tax collecting entity out there. We pay more in federal taxes than we do with state and local taxes, and because of that people only have capacity to pay so many taxes, right? So the more that the federal government charges, the more pressure there is on local and state officials to back off on what they charge. Well, guess what that what happens then? What happens is that then because the federal government has more money, they have more money to give out, they can then wield their power because the state and local governments don't have enough money on their own in their from their local and state taxes to operate. So they then re become more reliant on federal money, which makes them then subject to federal policy.
And that's that couldn't be more true than it is for schools, for example. So anyway, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out, but I guarantee you that um, there's going to be a lot of horse trading happening, and we're going to keep an eye on this on this uh, transportation bill uh, and how it progresses and then how it can be used as well. Because obviously, again, working in local government, I'm going to see firsthand how we're going to be able to have to go get that money and, and how we're going to have to spend it. And so as I learn those things, I'm going to pass those along to you so you can get that little insider's look at how things actually work in practical terms. And honestly, I'll do that with the stimulus package as well, because that's something I'm still waiting for guidance from um, just for my job. You know, from, from a professional standpoint, I'm waiting for guidance from the Treasury Department to see how exactly we can use the money that we're getting from this American Rescue Plan, because it's not, they, they, had, they had rules on how you can spend it, but the law is far from clear. And the law also gives um, the secretary or the, the, the treasury department a great deal of latitude in terms of how to interpret and implement this. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. But anyway, all right. When we come back, we're going to talk about COVID. Um, we're going to do a little bit of year in review. Um, and then we're going to talk about the vaccine and some of the things that are related to that, the vaccine distribution, where we are with that, um, the the concept of the vaccine passport, as it has been called, and some conspiracy theories. Those are always fun um, related to the vaccine. So we're going to talk about that uh, when we return. You're listening to The Moderate Podcast on Anchor.fm. Today's episode of The Moderate Podcast is presented by The Skin Store. For over 20 years, The Skin Store has been the number one destination for premium skincare, hair care, and beauty products. With over 8,000 different products from 300 different brands, The Skin Store has you covered for all your hair, cosmetic, supplements, and of course, skincare needs. Find your favorite brands like Elta MD, New Face, Olaplex, and more all in one place with gifts with every purchase. Right now, The Skin Store is offering our listeners 20% off your next purchase by using the code POD, that's code POD, P-O-D, for 20% off your next purchase at skinstore.com slash pod.list. Skin Store, have the confidence to tackle the day ahead. Exclusions apply. Welcome back to the Moderate Podcast. Now powered by Podbean. Glad to have you on the board this week. So let's get into this conversation about the coronavirus. And I talked about the fact that um, we did talk about the coronavirus early on, obviously, during the pandemic quite a bit. And we did take a break, though, from, from talking about it one week in particular. And so I wanted to share a, a little clip from that particular show um, you may recall that the, that the sensation during lockdown was Tiger King. And it's, it's hard to believe that it's now been over a year since that first debuted. And, in, and it was a year ago that we took a look at that show. My, and this is back when my dad um, joined us on the program. So I do have a clip I want to play. I, I'm, not gonna, I'm probably going to play about a minute, minute and a half or so. This is from back from episode um, number 68 um, for, let's see, what was the date on that one? It was uh, April 5th, so almost exactly a year ago today. 
um, that this episode debuted. So uh, here's a clip of of that um, from 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 the, from talking about a uh, little bit about Tiger King. Okay, so Tiger King. Um, right before we started recording, you were telling me that something in this looked familiar to you. So why don't you tell us? Why don't you tell us that, and then we will kind of give a synopsis of what this thing is all about. Yeah, well, I, uh, just watching it at first and stuff, um, I didn't know anything about it at all and stuff. And then I saw a picture of him that it reminded me a couple of years ago that he was on the news. Because I was, uh, the first few episodes, I'm, I'm, I'm still was confused of what this is all about. And I can't believe anybody has been seeing this. But then I, I, I keep getting things on Facebook about people talking about it and about him being in jail and stuff like that. So... Um, but first two, like the first one or second one, even it was like, I don't even know if I want to watch this, you know, but like any reality, no matter what it is, once you get two, three, four in there, then I'm curious what's going to happen, what's going to go on. Right. Yeah. It it, hooks you. It kind of adds certain things to it every episode. Like they add on like, it's like, okay, this is getting more crazy. And then near the end of that episode, they they introduce something else. You're like, wait, what, what is, what's going on now? And then you have to watch the next one. That's the, that's the, that's the thing too. When I first saw the very first show, I thought that was all it. Mm -hmm. You know, they kind of told all the characters and I thought that was it. But then each episode, like you said, had a twist to it. That's all, you know. And then all of a sudden, you know, or they bring in a new character, and so it uh, kept you uh, wondering. But like when I watched the first show, I thought, well, what, what how much more? What, could, what else are talking about? I thought that was all it. But that was just kind of introducing you to to it all. Yeah, and he. So so the the whole show. All right, that's enough. I, I think that kind of gives the idea. But um, so anyway. That was the something that came out of quarantine, and I I don't I can't imagine that it would have done as well as it did had it not been for everybody being locked down. I mean, this is this is what we resorted to um, to for entertainment, and um, I mean, you know, I guess I guess maybe it would have been still something that had gotten ratings and, and views and stuff, but I don't think it would have been nearly to the extent that it was had it not been for the COVID lockdown. So living in this in this world over the last year and seeing how things have progressed and you know we were on severe lockdown and things started to getting a little bit better and then they went down on more lockdowns again and but obviously there has not been a return to normal at least nationwide and it's varied greatly by states right so and again it's something that has has gone along uh, party lines for the most part Red states are more open than blue states are right now. And is that because the blue states are more science-based than the red states? I don't think so. Um, I think there's just interp- different interpretations as to what is going on. And the data, as far as infections and deaths and things like that, and the, and the rates of deaths, again, you have to look at it at rates so you can kind of do apples to apples. Um you know, they don't look much different. And so, you know, and then, so when you point that out, they're like, well, you know, there's, there, there, there's less density in Florida than there is in New York and New Jersey. And that's why New York and New Jersey are doing worse. So it's like, well, yeah. So that's why New York and New Jersey probably should continue with their lockdowns and Florida shouldn't. I mean, you know, you, the one side, you know, you, you want to criticize Florida for doing what it's doing. But then when you point out 
that the numbers are actually kind of similar, then you get accused of like, well, you know, you can't really compare those two, but you, but you wanted to, you just wanted to. Now, all of a sudden, when you look, when we're saying, well, look at the numbers, now you're saying you can't compare the two, but somehow Florida should follow what other parts of the country are doing, despite the fact that they have, you know, despite that their numbers aren't really that much different. Um, and But a lot of this has to do, I believe, with the vaccine and the fact that we've probably still, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the fact that we've probably still undercounted the total number of cases that have actually happened. And so the, the amount of immunity out there as a result would be much higher. Now there's obviously going to be overlap between the people that have taken the, that have gotten the vaccine and people that have already had it. Because I know of people that have gotten COVID that tested positive for COVID. So they were, they were actually part of the numbers that then subsequently got the vaccine. But I'm sure there's other people that have also gotten it and didn't know it, never tested positive and got the vaccine. And there's people that have never had it at all and got the vaccine. So we don't know, you can't just take an estimate of the number of, the, you know, you can't just take the people that have tested positive and add the number of people that are that are getting the vaccine. And that's the total amount of immunity. It, it's just, it's impossible to do that because there's so many other variables that go into it. But, you know, I think the fact that we're still pushing the vaccine, even if you've gotten it, just to be on the safe side, again, there are conspiracy theories out there, which we'll talk about in a minute, that probably would say, oh my God, you're stupid if you do that. You're stupid if you get it at all, but you're, you're especially stupid if you've already gotten it and get the vaccine. Um, but that's you know neither here nor there at this point. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you look at how states have rolled this out. And so I'm looking at the New York Times has a map out there. I'm not sure. Let me look at the date of this article. Um, updated April 1st. So it was updated as of yesterday, these numbers. And so they have a map that shows the United States and shows at least one where one dose has been um, has been given, and they have different shades. So the darker the state, the more people have that have gotten the, the vaccine. And the states that have done the best are mostly on the north in, uh, in New England. So Maine, New, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut. Um, over a third have already gotten at least one dose. And even the first dose um, has shown to be highly effective. Um, the second dose obviously is more effective, but the first, you know, even, even fully vaccinated, but even the first dose is shown to be very highly effective. Um, New Jersey has 34.1%. New Mexico is at 38.7%. I think they might be the highest. Let me, let me look through 36.8, 34, 36. Yeah, New, New Mexico has a higher percentage of anybody else that have gotten at least one dose. Now, again, the whole rivalry between California and Texas, and people are talking about Texas opened up to more people, um, but yet only 26.4% have gotten at least one, one dose, versus in California, 31.3% have gotten at least one dose, so five percentage points more. Um, Alaska is another one that has been doing very well, that has over a third done as well. California is getting to that point um you know, soon here. But I think that also has to do with the fact that less people want it in Texas. So the demand, the reason that they're expanding it faster in Texas is because the demand is lower. They still got per capita probably the same number of doses, but because less people want them, they can expand the eligibility for them. 
which is why they've expanded the eligibility faster in Texas, even though the percentage of people that have actually gotten it is lower. Florida, same thing, 28.5% of people, and yet they want to talk about Texas and Florida, oh, they're doing such a better job of administering the vaccine because they're expanding eligibility faster. It's like, no, it's because as a percentage of the population that wants it, that that percentage is lower. And again, I think it has to do with following party lines. And so they have another graph that shows about 30% have gotten at least one shot, and they believe we're going to get to 90% by July 25th. And if that's the case, then I, I I just don't know. I don't I don't see how we don't get to open fully. Um, and it says some experts have estimated that seventy to ninety percent of the total population needs to require resistance to the coronavirus to reach herd immunity. When transmission of the virus substantially slows because enough people have been protected through inve- infection or vaccination. So I think that when you get to that 70% number, you're getting there and you get to 90% by July 25th, but by July 4th, you're going to be damn near close to 80%, 70, 78% by July 2nd. And that is equal to all adults 18 or older. Um, and then they've also said that, which is funny, apparently they've done tests in 12 to 15 year olds and they found that it's hundred percent effective. Now I'm sorry. I'm I'm don't get me wrong. I'm a big proponent of vaccines, okay? I think that conspiracy theories against vaccines are absolutely crazy. Um we've enough history and data to in this country to show that it is absolutely the reason that we are living longer. You can tie our life expectancy increases directly to when there's been breakthroughs in in um vaccines for major diseases. That's why we virtually have no more polio. That's why measles, when there's a measles outbreak, it's such a big deal. It used to be measles was a common thing. Now it's not. Polio is virtually gone. It's not completely gone, but it's virtually gone. And why? Because of vaccines. That's that's the reason why. And the, you know, the, the advances of medicine have allowed us to live longer. And we're doing it despite eating more crappy. Could you imagine if we combined the healthy eating probably that, you know, honestly happened in the past because you didn't have processed foods, you had to cook things more naturally because you didn't have all these artificial flavors and ingredients and things like that. Everything was more natural based. If you took combine that with the advances in modern healthcare we probably, our life expectancy would be probably closer to 90. That's why you see other countries have longer life expectancies because they don't have as much of that in there and obesity isn't as much of a problem. So you look at Japan, for example, where the life expectancy is into the 80s and it has been for a while because they've done a good job of diet combined with advances in medicine. So that's where I'm at with, 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 the, with, the, with the vaccine and that's where we are with that. But now they're talking about, well, in order to incentivize people to do it, you know, a lot of places are starting to require proof of having the vaccine. And that's where this term vaccine um, passports comes into playing. And this is something that a lot of people are decrying, especially on the right um, and over privacy concerns, and that they believe that the vaccine passport 
is a way to collect data on people and con to control people. And that that was the whole purpose of having the vaccine so they could collect this information on you. Number one, they already have that information. All right, don't fool yourselves. They already have that information. Number two, there's really not much they can do to act on it. They have so much information on so many people, but you know, so people are like, oh my God, the government knows so much about me. Guess what? Unless you're doing something wrong, the government does not give two craps about you. I've, I've said that on the show before. Don't think you're so self-important that the government has any interest in what you're doing whatsoever unless it's something harmful, okay? Or it's something illegal. If you're just minding your own business, doing your thing, they don't give a crap because they don't have time to give a crap. They just don't have the time or the resources to care about your piddly little life. I am sorry. You're not as important as you think you are, especially to the government, all right? You know, we, we, we want to argue on both sides, out of both sides of our mouth. We want to say that the government doesn't care about the little guy, right? But yet we want to still argue that, oh my God, the government has all this information. They're spying on me. I was like, well, which, which is it? Do they care about you or they don't care about you? Because, because, because you're saying both by, by saying that, right? Now, here's something that Jeff Zentz, um, who is the coronavirus coordinator um, for in, in the Department of Health and Human Services, our role is to help ensure any solution in this area should be simple, free, open source, accessible to people with both digitally, both digitally and on paper, and designed from the start to protect people's privacy. And again, this is this is being pushed by the pub by the private sector more than it is the public sector, and partially because of lawsuits. Because I think as as businesses open more and more. Um, they want to make sure that they can prove that they have taken the safety precautions necessary that are that are considered now reasonable, which maybe before it wouldn't be considered reasonable, but now they're considered reasonable so that it, it keeps people safe so that if there's an outbreak at their at their, you know, whether it's on a cruise or going to a stadium or, th or things like that or movie theater, that if there's an outbreak, they can at least say, hey, we did our due diligence and you can't sue us. So this is more about CUIA from that kind of thing than anything else. And that's why it's being pushed by the private sector. So U.S. officials say they are grappling with an array of challenges, including data privacy and healthcare equity. They want to make sure all Americans will be able to get credentials that prove they have been vaccinated, but also want to set up systems that are not easily hacked or passports that cannot be counterfeited given that forgeries are already starting to appear. Now, um, here's another thing. Proof of vaccination may be a critical driver for restoring baseline population health and promoting safe return to social, commercial, and leisure activities, um, according to the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. But officials at the session warned of a confusing array of efforts underway to create credential credentials. A chaotic and ineffective vaccine credential approach could hamper our, our pandemic response by undercutting health safety measures, slowing economic recovery, and undermining public trust and confidence. Um, there is evidence now that could that vaccine passports could motivate skeptical Americans to get shots. Several vaccine-hesitant participants at a recent focus group of Trump voters, led by pollster Frank Luntz, 
suggested their desire to see family, go on vacation, and resume other aspects of daily life outpaced fear of the shots, particularly if travel companies and others move to require proof of vaccinations. Now, some attendees did descend and warned that requiring a credential would backfire. And one man said that he would change his travel plans as a result. Public health, health and ethics experts agree that the Biden administration needed to strike a careful balance, encourage shots, and support private sector initiatives, but don't put too much federal emphasis on the looming passports. If it became a government mandate, it would go down a dark road very quickly, said Brian Castrucci, uh, who leads the Bethesda, Maryland-based um, uh, De Beaumont Foundation. Um, it, if it becomes a credential. It becomes a needing your papers, if you will. That could be dangerous, and it could turn people off. And that's exactly a lot what a lot of people are arguing. And so I think that, and that's a valid concern. Again, I think that um, you know when when we, but but to travel right now, you have to show an ID, right? When if you want to get on an airplane, you have to go through a screening, and you have to show your ID, and. You know, and, that, and that's been in place for the last 20 years. Have I felt that that erodes my freedoms? No, it doesn't. I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, you have to be realistic about what, quote unquote, freedoms really are. And, and you're saying, well, you know, you know, they always quote Ben Franklin, you know, somebody that, that, that gives up freedoms to, to ensure their safety deserves neither. You know, and that's always a misquote that's been attributed to Ben, ben Franklin. But the reality is, is that what we view as quote unquote freedoms, I think is subject to interpretation as well. And it's like, are, are you really, you know, do you have a God-given right to step on an airplane owned by a private company? And do, and, and should we eliminate the FAA, right? Should we eliminate the FAA and all the regulations that go along with that? Should we eliminate TSA? Well, maybe in its current form, yeah, but not necessarily because of what their mission is, but maybe because of how they implement their mission. But the bottom line is that I don't see them doing screenings to get on an airplane to be an erosion of my freedom. I just don't. I just don't agree with that because I don't have to get on that airplane. I don't have a constitutional right to, be, to get on an airplane. So that is not a God-given right. So if they want to make restrictions on that to keep me safe, that's fine. Because guess what? It's not a God-given right in the first place. And so, as you can tell, I'm not a libertarian. But how far do you take it? How far do you take what what is what constitutes a freedom and what's not? Not everything you do and everything you say is a freedom. That's why if it was, then we'd have total anarchy. There would be no laws at all. Right? I, you know, I think we just take this whole, you know, you're taking my freedoms away. I think we take it a little bit too far. And then you look at these people that are pushing these conspiracy theories. There's this guy, um, is a 22 minute long Facebook video. I'm going to end with this. A man who identifies himself as Dr. Vernon Coleman. He has a lot to say about the COVID-19 vaccine. We all know that the evil elite, the Agenda 21 and Great Reset promoters, have all along intended to kill between 90 and 95% of the world's population, Coleman says in the video. Sadly, I fear it's already too late to save my, many of those who've had the vaccine. Millions are doomed. 
and I fear that many will die when they next come in contact with the coronavirus. So basically what he's saying is, is that by getting this shot, you're, it, 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 when you combine the shot that you're getting, then if you get coronavirus, that somehow it's going to put your immune system into overdrive and kill you. So your immune system basically is going to kill you, kill you, kill itself. It's going to kill you because it's it, the response it gives is too much. That's not even how this freaking thing works. That's not how it works at all. <laughs> I mean, this guy calls himself a doctor, and this isn't the first time. This is from PolitiFact, and this is the first time they debunked him. I guess. Um, in another 18-minute video, Coleman takes aim at politicians in the United Kingdom, he's a British guy, who have promoted the, the coronavirus vaccine. He calls the vaccine experimental and gene therapy and says that doctors who administer it are guilty of war crimes. How many doctors and nurses jabbing people with this stuff are telling, people, telling patients it's a trial? Well, none, because it's not a trial anymore. How many are giving people the information they need to make a value judgment? Um... You know, I, I take that as insulting, sir. Actually, I, I think I'm I'm good. Thanks. I would guess somewhere close to none. And so legally, all those people giving vaccines, vaccinations are war criminals. Huh? What? You cannot be serious. Man, this guy, this guy's a little uh Wow. Um but there that this here's the thing. He talks about Agenda 21 and the Great Reset. What are those things? Well, essentially, the Great Reset theory is that a group of global elites want to use the coronavirus as a tool to reorganize global societies and economies to their benefit at the expense of ordinary people with the ultimate goal of elite totalitarian regime. And those kind of theories have been around for decades, probably centuries. And a lot of it goes back to anti-Semitism, which I... I don't understand. Why is it that throughout history, we have accused the Jews of wanting to take over the world? Um, they've been around for 5,000 years. If they've wanted to take over the world, they've done a really crappy job of it. They've done a really bad job of it. So I've just never understood that that conspiracy theory that, you know, the Rothschilds and the Great Reset. Then you have um, another revived um, conspiracy theory. This is from agenda. You know, the Great Reset, by the way, really isn't is, is a real initiative. But the the conspiracy theory behind it, what its real true motivations are, and the same thing with the Agenda Twenty One. Agenda Twenty One is a real thing. It was a real proposal by the UN, but it was signed by on behalf of the United States. You know who signed it? George H. W. Bush back in 1991, 30 years ago. 30 years ago. So the Agenda 21 conspiracy theory dates back to the UN document from the early 90s, like I just mentioned, and similarly holds that a secret plot to impose a totalitarian world government is in motion. Well, they're going that, that they're definitely playing a long game. And I guess, um, well, maybe they call it Agenda 21 because it was going to take them 30 years to do it. And this was the final piece of it. And, and you know, when the guy talks about it, um, I, you know, he... I can see how idiots would 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 buy this, how people that have no critical thinking skills skills may buy into this because, you know, he points out how people are trying to shut him down. The, the man's trying to keep you know the global elitists are trying to shut him up, 
and that he's been called a conspiracy theorist nut. It's because he is. Um, but he, he points all those things out. So there, you know, the people that believe this stuff, they're like, well, he wouldn't say he's, he wouldn't mention conspiracy theories if he was actually promoting conspiracy theory. But that's part of the that's part of 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 the play. That's part of the gimmick. That's part of the work. That's what you do as part of that is you point out those things. Because the first thing he says, and this is always when you know that they're full of crap, is when they say, share this with everybody you know. Share this with everybody you know, because number one, I sound pretty good. I sound like I know what I'm talking about. And because you believe that, because you're already probably prone to think that that way, therefore you're going to believe me. And so you're going to pass it on. You're going to pass it on to like-minded folks, most, most likely, and they're going to pass it on. And all of a sudden, this thing has millions of views. Guess what views turn into? They turn into dollars. Conspiracy theory pushers are the modern-day carnival barkers. That's what they are. And it's so easy to make money on conspiracy theories. And, quite frankly... Donald Trump did conspiracy theorists a huge favor. That was always the biggest danger of the Donald Trump presidency was the fact that now conspiracy theories, which were on the fringe, now have a huge audience because it's the whole thing is, well, if the president of the United States says it, then it's got to be true. He wouldn't just say anything that's made up. And so having somebody in that position that has that kind of influence that people would assume is not crazy or a or not a criminal necessarily but somebody that is either a crazy conspiracy theorist or wants to get wants to manipulate people for their own gain a la Donald Trump because that's what he's made a living of doing his whole entire life why would him becoming president all of a sudden change that why would he change after 70 being alive for 74 years how would that change his 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 attitude his personality and so the the growth in and the the prominence of conspiracy theories is bigger now than it ever has been largely because you had somebody in the White House in the most powerful position in the world pushing conspiracy theories. And that's why conspiracy theories are more dangerous than they ever have been because they're getting a bigger audience than they have ever have been. And if it hadn't been for Donald Trump, they wouldn't have the audience they would have. Because conspiracy theorists were still seen as fringe back in 2014, 2015, before Donald Trump came along. And now you have Donald Trump. He wins the White House. He pushes conspiracy theories, whether he knows it or not, whether he intends to or not. But he pushed the, the election conspiracy theory. He pushed other things about the China virus and Kung flu and things like that. Yeah, it originated in China. We know that. Um, but now, you know, it, 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 it ties Chinese people to that. And you remember, a lot of his supporters, not the brightest crayons in the box, right? So they equated the China virus to Chinese people. Whether Trump intended to do that or not, who the hell knows? He even says he didn't. But his his followers, that's the way they interpreted it. Because guess what? Their, their brains were wired that way to do that. They were prone to do that. And that's why they did it. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. 
Well, that's going to wrap it up for the Moderate Podcast this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please visit our new and improved website now. Our website points directly to our podcast page. And so it's redesigned. You can still get our social media links on that page there. But if you visit themoderatepodcast.com, that's where you can follow the show. Um, You can get access to our uh, XML feed, which is uh, www.themoderatepodcast.com slash feed.xml. If you want to put it into your podcast catcher that way. So that's one of the reasons we went to Podbean was just because we have more flexibility on those on that front. So anyway, check it out. Um, check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash the moderate podcast. Check, check us out on Twitter at the mod podcast one and check us out on Instagram at the moderate podcast. So everybody enjoy your Easter. Um, go to mass, be a good Catholic. If you are Catholic, if you're not Catholic, if you're you know not of the Christian persuasion, have a nice ordinary Sunday. And until next time, everyone stay safe and keep it real.